your church and your people that this community goes beyond walls and chairs and geography, but it's, it's your people that you have saved by your Son. This morning I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. No touching. So, here we got a picture. Anybody know what that picture is? That's me and Sandy. No, not quite Sandy and I. Um, this is a picture painted by Quentin Massey in the year 1514. So it was a couple weeks ago. And the name of this picture is called The Money Lender and His Wife. And it's depicting the guy, he's the money lender, and he's going through the coins, and he's weighing things out, he's making sure the gold equals what the, what the uh, cost is. And his wife is sitting next to him, and she is flipping through a book. Some scholars think it's the Bible, others may think it's just a, a prayer book, but it's a really nice one, it's got gilded pages and, and pictures, and it's got the strap on it. But she is being distracted from, we'll just say, the Bible. And she's watching her husband who is counting the cash. Now, Massey has painted this picture for a purpose, for for a meaning. His hometown of of Antwerp during this time started to become a, a center for commerce and trade. And what he's doing is he is depicting how easy it is for people to be distracted from God by money. Now, I think we all have felt that tension a little bit in our our hearts. Like, you know, the scriptures say, seek first the kingdom and then all the other stuff gets added on to you. And the message of the gospel and and forgiveness of sin and the cross of Christ, these are all very important things for us Christians, for, for the church. But how easily, I don't know about you, but how easily we get distracted. Like I find that now that it's nice out, when I get up in the morning, I like to go outside on the deck and read the Bible and spend some time in prayer. But I've learned that I cannot take my phone or my iPad with me because Facebook just sucks me in, and I, oh yeah, the Bible, oh, oh, I don't have time now. And how easily distracted we are by Instagram and Twitter and Facebook when God is calling us just to spend some time with him, to hear his voice in the word. Now we've been working through Ecclesiastes, and the teacher is now going to kind of help us with this idea of finances and money. And he's going to teach, to, he's going to teach us some of the pros and cons of wealth. But he starts off with something very interesting. And this iPad is going to be the death of me. Come on. Sue, would you go forward one? So Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8, this is what the teacher says. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. 
For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. So now he's pointing out something in this, his uh, teaching about money that I think we all can kind of get our heads around. There is injustice and oppression that takes place in our world. You can't miss it. It just happens to be everywhere. We see it in all governments, in all countries, even our democracy. There's oppression. There's injustice. Companies, they look for profit instead of caring for people. And then the people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, they seem to have it the worst, though. And the author or the teacher is telling us, don't be so surprised by that. And he's not excusing it in any way. He's just kind of pointing out, this is the human condition. This is what the world is like through sin. He's calling out what is taking place in the world. Now, as I kind of get a hold of this, these verses, I'm, I'm beginning to think to myself, well, how does this add to anything that he's going to be talking about for the rest of the verses? Like, why is he thinking, why is he, why is this thought process that we shouldn't be surprised at injustice or oppression? He describes like a, a hierarchy of governments. Like there's an official is eyed by a, another one who's eyed by another one. And I'm not really sure of the connection that he's trying to make with oppression. Maybe bureaucracy leads to oppression. Yeah, I can get that. Or maybe, maybe on every level of government, they're always looking to get more from the other level of government. I can understand that. Maybe he's trying to get to the fact that people in authority, sometimes they abuse that authority. I, I can get a hold of that. But it seems that injustice slides down the ladder all the way to the bottom, to the poor, where they almost, I, I would think if they had the opportunity, they would oppress others, but there's really not many people left there. And so they take it out upon themselves. Now, if you really want to get geeky about this stuff, and you really want to geek out a little bit, to translate this verse, you have to go to the word eyed. For one official is eyed, or in some versions, watched. Now, to interpret it in a negative context, he's saying that all of the people in government, they're suspicious of one another. They want to make sure that they keep an eye on everyone else to make sure that nothing is being taken from them. And they can hold each other a little bit accountable so nobody gets ahead. Or if you take it in the flip side, in the positive context... It could be interpreted, eyed, or watched as people in power got each other's backs. And so it's always kind of this us versus them. We have the power. We can't allow them to infiltrate us because they will steal the power from us. Thus, if they take the power, they take the money. And once you get the money, you get the power. Or once you get the power, you get the You, you know what I mean. But whatever he's trying to get at, I guess we can kind of get this feel that injustice has many different layers and many different flavors. And many times money is at the root. The love of money is at the root of power. Martin Luther said that government crushes the man 
extinguishes him and utterly destroys him. Have a nice day. So maybe, maybe verse 9 will give us a little help trying to figure this out. Next, next slide, Sue. So if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Okay, so maybe this verse isn't going to clarify things all that much. And again, it really, the, the really smart people, the scholars, they have a little trouble with this verse because they really don't know what the teacher, what Solomon is trying to say. There's those that interpret it in the negative that's, that tell us that, well, this, this is about people wanting, grabbing, getting more. And the king, the king takes part in it, and, and he's just as bad as everyone else. And then if you look at it at the positive, what, what some say this is trying to propose is, in order to have a godly government, you need a godly king. But I would say that both of these scenarios play themselves out in our culture. You see some governments do well, some not so much. Now, I'm going to say this about that, that we know that corruption can happen everywhere, at every point, at every place. Even, even, even the most righteous, democratic governments, they believe people are evil and sinners, That's why we have checks and balances in government so that people in power are held accountable. I mean, at least in theory anyway. That's why we have laws because we know that if we were given free reign, we have a term for that, right? It's called anarchy. And so governments just take the the truth that, well, people are just going to be bad. But here's the thing. There will never be A single government on this earth that is going to fix the human condition. Because the human condition is the darkness of the human heart. And you cannot legislate that. You cannot govern that. In fact, here's here's what the church looks to as a better administration. One that's not defined by the donkey or the elephant. One that's defined by this. Next slide, Sue. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is our hope. This is our foundation. Not in the world, not in governments, not in political parties. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't go out and vote. Please just vote your conscience, whether you're a Democrat, Republican. I'm an equal, equal opportunity offender. I really don't care. But this is our hope. This is where we put our feet and say, no. One day... Jesus is coming back. So the teacher, he's kind of talking about this whole oppression and people want more and people are suspicious of each other because they don't want to lose power and they don't want to lose money. So he's kind of talking in these broad strokes. But now he's going to get to the nitty gritty and he's actually going to give us some some things that we can kind of grab a hold of. So verse 10, he says this, whoever loves money 
never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. So first he's talking about the poor and the oppressed. Don't be so surprised. And then he gets to whoever loves money never has enough. If you live for the almighty dollar, you will never have enough almighty dollars. If all you want is cash in your life, you will never have enough. It's that quote that was asked, or um, the, the interviewer asked um, John D. Rockefeller. Hey, Johnny D., how much money is enough in his famous or infamous answer? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. There was a book that was written by Jesse O'Neill. It's called The Golden Ghetto, The Psychology of Affluence. And in her book, she writes, and she kind of coined the term affluenza, which is this unhealthy sickness or desire for money. It's an unhealthy relationship. And I, and I was thinking about that, like, I would think it takes some money to have or suffer from affluenza. But I'm thinking, no, I think as Americans, we probably all suffer from a minor case of it. Even when we're thankful, even when um, we, we, we try to live content, we, we tend to dream about things that we don't have or can't have. This year, I'm very disappointed to say, to tell you, that the Lions Club at the Woolkit Fair isn't raffling a Harley Davidson off, and so my dreams have now been shattered. And they have this three-wheel ugly thing I guess it's the new math. But I digress. And when we realize that we can't have a heart, anything that, that you want, you, you, you kind of get this little discontentment. When those motorcycles rip up and down your street every day and they mock you, there's a little bit of discontentment that grows in the hearts. Or maybe, maybe you suffer from a little guilt because, you know, you really can't have that thing where you can't afford it, but you buy it anyway, and now you're just a little bit deeper in debt. See, I would say the desire for things, if I want to be honest, and I know this is church, we don't like that, but, but if I'm going to be honest, the desire for stuff never really goes away. It's always this struggle that we have. And sometimes we do better and sometimes maybe not so good. But the teacher is telling us that if you live for money, if that's your focus in life, life becomes meaningless. There's no purpose left. And he's going to give us a list of reasons why. Next verse, Sue. Verse 11. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? And what he's talking about here is the more stuff you have, the more people want to take your stuff. If you've ever read the story of people who win the lottery, and, and some, many of them say that they never really realized how many family members they now have because they all want a little piece of the pie. And if the more money that you get there's a very good opportunity that you may be paying Uncle Sam a little bit more. At least that's the way it should work anyway. And then you have, family, or, you know, you have your kids who, who want the inheritance, and so they don't want you to spend the money and enjoy it because then you're spending their inheritance. And so the teacher's telling us, listen, the more you got, the more hands are going to be in your pie, and they want some of it. And if they succeed in getting it, then what good is it to you? You just kind of look on. And watch them consume it. 
And then he continues on. Sue. I forgive you. Next slide. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. So there's this general rule that if you work hard, especially if you work hard with your hands, you know, you're, you're very physical, that at the end of the day, sleep comes easy. You're tired. You curl up in bed and you, you pass out. Whether you eat a lot or a little, hard work puts the body into sleep mode. But he's saying here that the rich, it's not so much. They don't have that, that sleep, that deep slumber at the end of the day. And it's not because of what you may think. It's not because they're worried about their stuff. But it's because of their lifestyle. It's because of their, they, they've become rich and lazy. It's because that they get to eat the best fatty, rich foods and now they got a bellyache, and they just can't seem to go to sleep. See, being rich, not always, but being rich can be unhealthy, physically unhealthy. Now, I wouldn't mind being a test subject for that, giving it a shot, but God has yet to test me in this. But if, if you've ever watched or read the stories of childhood stars, and as they grow, they get all this money, and many of their stories are heartbreaking, emotionally, uh, emotional diseases and sicknesses, physical addictions, drugs. Many don't even make it out of their teens or early 20s. Sometimes, not always, sometimes being rich can be physically unhealthy. And so people who work hard, if you work hard, count your blessing, even if it's not a big paycheck at the end of the week. Because that's God's grace to us. I, I was reading this, this one writer. I have no idea who he was. Um, just in my study through all this, this week. And, and he, was, he was reflecting on the lifestyle of the rich and lazy. That's the way he termed his article. And he was talking about how in a Western civilization we have these health clubs. And in these health clubs, in these gyms, we have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of exercise equipment. And he said it's, it's baffling to him why Westerners spend so much money trying to undo what ease and money has done to them. And so we have to go exercise at the health club. I almost wanted to quit the why, but I didn't. And so now he's, it, the teacher is warning us, okay, listen, it, it doesn't necessarily have to go this way, but be careful. If you're living for money and you're living for stuff, there could be some pitfalls for, from it. And so he talks about having too much, but now he's going to talk about losing it. He said, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to, ha- to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune. So that, that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. So this is the third reason that the teacher is telling us why it's dangerous to live for money and stuff and power. Because it may be here today, but tomorrow it could be gone. And what he's talking about here is, is a man... Someone who has taken a risky investment. Maybe he's playing the stock market. Maybe he found a good deal on camels or goats and he's going to invest. And it falls apart and he loses everything. 
to his harm. And what makes the story even more heartbreaking is that he has children, and because of his, his, because of his attitude of money is everything, he has nothing to leave his kids. Nothing to bless them with when he goes. Now, our finances should not just focus on us. Our finances should focus first on the big picture, God's kingdom, and we should think about our families. We should be thinking about their future, about our children and our children's children. But remember, the teacher is telling us it's not about money. Don't make life about money. Don't make it your focus, because when it becomes your focus, life turns meaningless. And one more reason he's going to tell us, watch out. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? The late, great Greg Allman, he wrote a song and said, You can't take it with you. Everybody knows you can't take it with you when you go. Job, he lost everything. He's sitting in ash, dust. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I'm going to leave. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul writes to Timothy chapter 6. He says, Tim, we brought nothing into this world and we can't take a thing from it. So here's the painful truth. Everything that we have labored for, everything that we have amassed, everything that we have saved, everything that we have built, one day we will give away to someone else. It's the story of our mortality. I read this quote from a golfer. He I've never heard from him, so maybe it was a long time ago. But he was asked, he, he made it big, he was doing great, he had all the sponsorships and things going on. And somebody asked him, some interviewer, he said, what are you afraid of? Like, are you afraid of anything? And he said, yeah. He says, you know, I have enough money now to do anything I want, so dying wouldn't be good. You can't take it with you when you go. No one will ever change that truth, no matter how hard we try. And what the teacher is telling us, there is nothing to gain in chasing after money. There is nothing to gain in chasing after stuff. It takes practice. It takes practice to hold on to things loosely, to know that they don't go with us. It takes, it takes a certain mindfulness to look at life's blessings and be grateful with the things that we have. Contentment at times, believe me, it ain't easy. It's not easy. Because you, you know how I know? Because if it was easy, everybody would live a life of contentment. And man, I can't even muster it up in my own heart sometimes. It takes discipline. Discipline to travel light in the world because, rest assured, we will all leave this behind when we enter into eternity. We take nothing with us. It all stays here. And so Solomon's going to kind of summarize this whole thing. He says, all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. 
He's talking about what greed looks like. What this whole, I'm living for the almighty dollar, I'm living for more stuff. This is a picture of a wealthy miser, and he's just this living in this self-inflicted frustration, affliction, and anger. The unhealthy desire for more and more and more. A heart that is never satisfied is a breeding ground for anger, corruption, greed, the abuse of power. The teacher is telling us to guard our heart against it. It's chasing after the wind. It's meaningless in the grand scheme of things. But I find it interesting the way he's going to end this all up. He says, this is what I have observed to be good. That is appropriate for a person to, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. Now I read this and go, bro, you're contradicting yourself. You just said, be careful, be on guard. All these horrible, nasty things could happen. And now you're saying, but if you got it, enjoy it. And so I, I kind of wrestled through this a little bit. And, and, so, and, and I had to study through this and pray through this. Because sometimes the scripture frustrates me. And I guess the only thing I could come to is he's finally bringing God into the picture. Because he hasn't mentioned God at all from verse 8 until now. And he's bringing God into the picture, and he's telling us, this is what a godly view, this is what a godly perspective looks like. This is what happens when God is at the center. That everything we have is a blessing. When you go home today, walk through your house, everything that's in your home is God's gracious gift and blessing to you. Every penny in your checking account is God's gracious gift to you. Everything that we have, the clothes that are on us, are God's gracious gift, and we praise God for clothes, gracious gift to us. Everything. The car that you will drive home in, the gas that's in the tank, the air conditioner that's going to blow on you, and the radio that you'll listen to are God's gracious gift to us. And even if we don't have much, even if we have limited days here on this earth, every day is a sacred, holy gift given to us by our Creator. And that's the perspective we look at. Verse 19, moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, because this is a gift from God. If you begin to enjoy what God has given you, even your enjoyment is God's gift to you. Our enjoyment comes from the Lord. Joy. Joy is not contingent upon our circumstances. Joy is God's gift to us. The ability to, the ability to enjoy anything, our work, our money, our friends, family, it all comes from the Lord. And at the end, he's calling us back. He's saying, God is a God of joy. 
And this is his desire for his people. And whatever we have, can you find joy in it? And so for us, the church, we have to begin to ask ourselves the tough questions. Are we finished with the pursuit of stuff? I'm not saying you can't have things. But if that is your goal in life, to get more, to achieve more, to make more, if that's your primary focus, The teacher's telling us, man, you're walking the wrong path. It will all end up meaningless. Have we looked to the Lord for our joy? I guess the way scripture would say it is, I will be content with less because God is my satisfaction. That sounds really good on paper, doesn't it? So difficult to let it marinate in my heart and soul and affect the way I live my life. But if I can get there, by God's grace, if I can get there, look what it says in verse 20. Those people, they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. What he's saying is when we put God first, when we seek the kingdom of God first, and we accept the blessings that God has for us, We don't have to sit and worry and reflect and have regrets because God is going to fill us with his joy and his gladness. We don't have to think about all of the the crap that lays behind, but we can look to the future because God is filling us with good things, gladness, and joy. See, would you go to the next slide? Remember this picture we started out with? This is the money lender and his wife. She's a bit distracted. But down near the book, there's this little thing. It's a mirror right here. And the artist has painted that mirror, and it's looking away from the frame of the money lender and his wife. And there's something going on over here that. He is painting. See, would you go to the next slide? Here's a close-up. Scholars believe that this is the painter himself, Massey. And he's turned away from the money. And he's looking out the window, and you see the frame of the window is in the shape of a cross. And his hand is reaching out for the cross. He has made a decision not to make money his focus, but the cross of Christ. He knows that's where true joy is. That money will never buy happiness or joy. But true joy is found in the cross of Christ in our salvation. Jesus, he said, you can't serve two masters, money and God. You're going to love one or hate the other one. And where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us. May the spirit of contentment fill our hearts. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.